This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast, show 140. You got to treat this, even if you only own one property, from day one, you treat it as a business. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Stay tuned and be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com. Your home for real estate investing online. What's going on, everybody? This is Josh Dorkin, host of the Bigger Pockets podcast, here with my co host, Mr. Brandon Turner. What up, buddy? Not much. How are you doing? I am good. School is back in session. In other words, your kids are out of your hair. You know what? <laughs> I, that makes me sad. That part makes me sad. It's nice to get back to a routine. There's yeah. something. There's something nice about just kind of getting back to it and, and really being able to focus. Of course, my routine was devastated this week because of jury duty. Oh, yeah. How'd that go? Did you send a guy to jail? I, I did not. I got to wait in the big room and wait for my name to be called, and, and it never was, which, which was kind of nice so I could get back to work. But it was the third time, third time I've been called in like five years, four or five years, which is wow. a little... Little troubling to me. There's certainly <laughs> enough people in in our county uh, to make it so I don't have to go that often. Yet they keep calling me. You know, I I have I'm 30 years old. I have never been called for jury duty. Isn't that weird? I don't know. I, I feel weird. About I that. you know. And I live I in hope, Grace I Harbor. Like open felony. the mail next week and 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 get some. Yeah, you would think <laughs> I, Grace yeah, Harbor. There's probably it's like felony well, flats. We call it because there's yeah, a aren't lot like 40 percent of, of your people in jail. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> so, it's amazing. So that's a lot so, yeah. of court cases. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I don't know. My wife's been called like three times. I've never been called. Fascinating. Maybe they don't have my address right. And maybe, I don't know. Oh, whoops. I'd have no idea. That, that might be an accident too, I, right? <laughs> I actually want to do it. I think it'd be fun because I've never done it. Yeah. I'm a John Grisham guy. I love reading court. And I'm sure it's just like that, right? Oh, yeah. I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure. All right, man. Well, uh, yeah. So, so, uh, today we, we've got a, we've got a pretty cool show. It yeah. Was, I love uh, today's show. Yeah, Loved it was it. really, really great. Let's let's kind of get to it. Uh, but before we do, why don't we start with today's quick tip. tip. All right, guys, quick tip. I know we say this probably on every other show or something. Uh, <laughs> it's not a, I haven't really used it as a quick tip, but today's quick tip is get out there, find people, reach out to somebody. Basically take five minutes today, five minutes tomorrow, five minutes the next day and reach out to somebody that you have not yet met. Reach out to somebody in the business, in your area, somebody local and strike up a new relationship. Um, just say hi to somebody. Jump on the Bigger Pockets site. Go to biggerpockets.com slash meet and, and look for local folks and, and reach out. The more you do this, the more that you make this part of your business on a regular basis, the bigger your network's going to be, the more the opportunities are going to fall into your lap. So uh, get out there and make that happen. Wow, that was very motivational. Thanks, man. That's yeah. what I'm here for. Yeah. I was actually thinking after the interview we did with this guy today, we just got done recording it. I'm like, oh, I could drive down to see him. I mean, he's only like three hours from my house. I was like, I want to drive down there and go and talk to him because I know that's the guy that's going to help me get my business to the next level because I want to be where he's at. So yeah, awesome. Bill, I'm coming for you sometime soon. Yes. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. 
Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. If you're in the landlord game, then you know the importance of solid tenant screening. That's where RentReady steps in. Now, RentReady's got an important new feature, proof of income verification. And get this, with Plaid certified reports, you'll see everything from income summaries to total earnings by month. Say goodbye to those gut check moments and hello to confidence in renting with RentReady. RentReady is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. If you're not a pro, they're offering a six month plan for $1. You can't beat that. I actually don't even know how they make money doing that, but it's above my pay grade, pal. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor, like me, to get six months of RentReady for $1, which is crazy. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through Rent to Retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, Rental Retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to Retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to rentoretirement.com today. All right, today, guys, we have Bill Sirius. Bill is the father of previous guests, Andrew and Philip. And uh, Bill is uh, focused on a really cool niche, which is student housing. But today's show, we certainly get into detail in student housing, and, and, and we really, really dig in on it. And he's got so much to share. He's been doing this for a long time. But we, we yeah. talk about a whole lot of other things that would really be relevant to pretty much anybody uh, in, in real estate. So uh, this is a great show for everybody to tune into, listen up, listen carefully. Uh, the strategy that he's got, the niche that he focuses on is, is great. And the way he, he looks at the business is, is unbelievable. So tune in. This guy is a pro. He's been doing it a long time, since 1980. And uh, you know, learn a whole lot. So uh, let's bring him on board. Bill, welcome to the show, man. It's great to have you here. Thank you. Appreciate being here, Josh and Brandon. Thank you. Thank you. This will be fun. Uh, this is our first ever, right? This is our first ever father son, you know, or having both the father and the sons on a it bigger is. pockets it's a podcast. Dynasty. Is, is that right? Well, I guess the sons were the first time you had brothers on, and now you have uh, most of the family. Got a couple more sons, one in Portland, one here in town, but uh, well, let's get them off. <laughs> yeah. And we are talking about Andrew and Philip. 
Andrew and Philip in Kansas City, Luke in Portland, Mark here in town uh, with us. So I got four sons, and they're all more gifted than their old man, nice. which sadly isn't saying that much. But <laughs> <laughs> do what you now, can do. Now, are there like 17 daughters to, to go along we with? We wish. Yeah, my okay. parents had 10 grandsons, and that's kind of what they're dealing with. So wow. uh, we're looking for a princess among the pack here <laughs> in the granddaughter wow. category. Uh, we talked to Andrew and Philip. Andrew, yeah, a little. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Do what yeah, you well, can for us, all right? <laughs> all right. Well, so that was you know that was a great show. We really really enjoyed having them, and and I know they had mentioned you a bunch, and we we've you know we we decided it, it'd be great to to bring you on. So let's just dig into this thing. You know, you've been in the business for a long time, correct? I have been, yeah. I uh, had an interesting semi-fault start in Portland starting in 1980. Ooh, uh, relocated cool. down in Eugene. Yeah, that was at the crest of the market. That's like starting in, ni- in 2007, actually. It's kind of okay. comparable. So nice. I, rode the, I rode the crest going down. And I want to oh. ask you really, really quick before you go on, just b- because I, I think it's important. You know, Some stuff here is, is fairly timely. What were interest rates back in 1980? Well, uh, yeah, they were going between 12, 13%, maybe even 15 at the very height of the market. It was a dark era in real estate. And darker yet was Oregon because Oregon was based on the timber economy much more so than it is now. And so when that, those kind of interest rates hit the country, it went into recession, but Oregon went into a virtual depression and prices dropped like 35%. So people were just holding on for the ride down, kind of like what happened, you know, not too many years ago. So we had seen that movie before, and yeah. it wasn't wasn't a pretty picture, I can tell you that. So that's right. when I started my real estate career. I actually bought four properties in Portland, and I was fortunate to get out of town without uh, having too many losses. But uh, kind of an experience that I started back up again in Eugene after I actually came down. I was a campus pastor for many years. And I relocated to Eugene because of the University of Oregon, focusing on working there. And then at one point, I came down in 86. and 89, I realized I'm not going to do this the rest of my life. What do I really want to do for the rest of my life? And I thought back, I really like that real estate thing. Didn't work out so well for me the first time around, but maybe I could try it again. So, so I... I want to ask you a question on that because I had an email from a guy a couple of weeks ago and I get him maybe once or twice a month, maybe, I don't know. Uh, people saying, I tried to invest in real estate once before, it didn't work out, and now I'm scared to get back in again. And so, you know, as somebody who went through that, you went through it, it didn't work out so good. I mean, how did you get the guts to go back in and what should you other know, people do? Uh, I realized the advantages of real estate, the I-D-E-A-L that I think my sons talked about, income, depreciation, equity buildup, appreciation, potential, leverage. I knew all that, so I knew it was a viable business. The question was, how could I make it viable? And it was a book that actually turned me around. The book on uh, landlording, uh, property management, And I realized through reading that book, I had treated real estate like a hobby instead Mm -hmm. of a business. I was doing really informal. I had an informal relationship with my tenants. I was doing kind of, uh, sometimes I didn't even do rental agreements. Uh, My construction skills were less than lousy. And I (laughs) I needed to hire people out to do certain things. So I made so many mistakes in starting out in Portland. And reading that book kind of said, you got to treat this, even if you only own one property, 
from day one, you treat it as a business. Yeah. So that meant getting business cards. It meant getting a business name. It meant meeting tenants not in my home, but my office. Now, my office in those days was Wendy's. And <laughs> oh, of course, nice. they, they didn't realize I was out you know, from my regular brick-and-mortar office, just happened to be out that day, and I could meet them at a restaurant. But that was my office. That's where I'd meet tenants. So it wasn't so informal as to, you know, hey, you know, meet them at my house and bring them there. That, that wasn't a good thing. It wasn't business-minded. I was entrepreneurial in nature, but in college, I never took a single business class. And that's what I realized. I needed to treat real estate from the first property on as a full-blown business. Yeah. I mean, that, that is so true. And that's something I didn't do at the very beginning either. You know, the idea of a business versus a hobby. I just got into it because they said to buy real estate, right? Like, that's just the thing you do. And mm-hmm. I didn't realize there was so much more. In fact, you know, I don't know if we've talked about it yet on the show, but we've got a new uh, a book on landlording coming out this fall, hopefully, uh, here at Bigger Pockets. And my wife and I co-wrote it. And there's the second chapter of that book, the entire second chapter, which is like 10,000 words, is called The Business of landlording. And it's entirely on the difference between that because I wanted to emphasize that so much because, I mean, I think if there's one mistake people make early on in their landlording, it's that problem of not, yeah, it's that not treating it like the business that it is and they just treat it like a hobby. Well, it's not professional, right? And and it's not, that's not to say somebody is a bad person, but they don't understand that they have to be professional in order to, yeah, they have to have that professional mindset in order to run it. And I think you know you're straying into uh, bad territory business-wise if you're treating your tenants as your friends. That doesn't mean they're, you know, they're, they're customers, they're clients, they're your residents, they're your income base, but they're not your buddies, you know, and yeah. you shouldn't treat them as such and you shouldn't yep. think of them in that way. Uh, of course, be friendly, but they're not friends. They're just yeah. like any business, other business relationship you would have. Sure, yeah. sure. Hey, hey Bill, so you... you you know, you talked about the four properties in Portland, and and you're, you you mentioned that you failed. So, could, would you mind digging in a little bit on on what exactly happened? How did you fail? Uh, why did you fail? Well, okay, so I uh, that's a, that's a really good question. I uh, I was fortunate that one of those properties turned out to be pretty pretty good. But uh, here, here's here's what you think you think you failed. You didn't really fail, but then you really fail. Let me let me give you an example. So I bought a property near Mount Tabor, beautiful area in Portland, and it was I bought it at uh, for sixty thousand. I put some money into it, about seventy thousand I had into it. I sold it for that amount, and the couple that bought it from me was named Michael and Julie. And this is interesting. We happened I happened to meet them, my wife and I, uh, just a couple years ago. They sold it at the very bottom of the market in Oregon, and they sold it in 84, I think it was, for 66000 They lost $4,000. Then they turned around and told me, would you like to know the rest of the story? And I knew what was coming. I said, I don't think so. I will tell it to you anyway. The <laughs> property recently sold for $950,000, oh. $880,000 more. Than I sold it for. <laughs> okay. Wow. So it's like, yeah, you can you can fail, but sometimes if you just hold on, if you just work it out, uh, a, a failure can turn into something profitable. In my case, sadly, somebody else made the profit from that particular house. So I I think I just I I pulled the trigger too quickly. I got scared. I sold property that I didn't know what I was doing with property management. 
I didn't know what I was doing with construction. I didn't really have a strategy. Of, was I buy and hold? Was I flipping? What was I doing? So I think I was just confused as to what my niche was. And since then, I've realized that truly you have to become an expert in a niche market. And there's niches all, all across the landscape. When, even when it comes to, to real estate, what is the niche market that I'm going to become initially an expert in? I can, I can expand from there, but what's the market? I wasn't a niche thinker. I was just kind of a broad thinker. Yeah, I'll just do everything in every way. And that's why it didn't work out very well. Yeah, yeah. You know, you know, Bill, you talk about the niches and I think that is so important because people get overwhelmed with this idea of real estate, right? There's so many things they can do and there's hundreds of books and thousands of, you know, hours of, you know, podcasts mm-hmm. and videos on YouTube and everything. And so what I like to explain to people is exactly what you said. Just pick a niche to get into and focus on that. And then combine that with a strategy, you know, like idea of, you know, you're going to get into one niche of a property. Like maybe I want single family houses or I want just small multifamilies for now, or I want student housing. And then what are you going to do with that? What's the strategy? Are you going to flip it? Are you going to rent it? Are you going to be a landlord? And so, you, I mean, it really simplifies everything down. It's one thing we really press upon in the ultimate beginner's guide to real estate investing, which, yeah. um, yeah, if people haven't read that biggerpockets.com slash UBG, they can check that out for free anytime. It's an online book. So yeah, check it out. So anyway, niches, what did, what did you get into? What was your niche that you got into? Well, maybe one of the first things that took me off or teed me off to a niche idea was when I decided I was going to buy a certain vehicle, I, uh, had this, um, well, I call it Battlestar Galactica, uh, that my parents gave me, a Ford Granada, 1976. Can you share it to the 12-year-old uh, who's my co-host <laughs> here what Battlestar Galactica was? <laughs> I know what Battlestar Galactica... Well, look, at, there's a new version Google. of Battlestar Galactica. This, yeah, just Google it. I'm, I'm right. assuming this you're talking car, about the old version. This car looked like something out of that sci-fi show. All right, anyway, we wanted to, I wanted to get rid of it and get something that was usable. So I said, what do I want? So I decided what I wanted was a Toyota pickup truck. And then what year did I want? I didn't want a new one. Didn't want to pay that kind of money. I wanted something between 79 and 81 because that was a certain kind of model. So I got to know 79 to 81 Toyota pickup trucks probably better than anybody else in the country. That was my niche market. I wanted to know how much they were worth. So when I saw one pop up somewhere... I would know exactly how much its value was. This is pre-internet days. You're not searching and comparing a bunch of stuff. You have a limited market, right? I put an ad in the paper said, wanted a 1979 to 1981 Toyota pickup truck. I'll trade you a car I have. I found a guy in Corvallis who needed to cut down on his debt to buy a house, and he had a 1981 Toyota pickup truck. I knew instantly how much it was worth. And I also knew what my car was worth. I went down and traded him my 76 Granada for that Toyota pickup truck. And I was a master of that niche market, truly the master. Nice. Now, if you could just take that kind of mindset to real estate, you know, a specific niche, we're going to talk about student housing, but can you get to know what houses are valued in a particular area so that when you show up, you know exactly what your upside is, you know what the problems are to work with, you know what obstacles you have, and you know what value you can come out with. That takes a real focus on a niche market. That's I love great. that. Yeah. That's amazing. I, I I think that is absolutely pure gold for anybody who's listening. Just you know, think 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 about it for a second, let it kind of settle in because 
I mean, that's that's exactly what you want to do. So you went, took that, and you said, went into student housing. Why student housing? Well, as I mentioned, I, I had relocated from Portland to Eugene to work as a campus pastor. So I was very familiar with students. I like students. You know, not everybody does. I really enjoyed hanging around with students. I like I felt I was a student all the way up into my 40s. You know, I still feel kind of like I'm a student, I guess. Uh, don't look that way so much anymore. <laughs> I, love, I love the lifestyle. I love to stay up late. I love everything about students. And so I was located close to campus. I just fell into the student market. Again, you'd think all this strategy was coming to fore. No, I just said, I think I'll buy something around the campus. And it was as I got into it, I realized this was a very profitable niche potentially and uh that that's kind of where things started out for me no people always say student housing is a terrible idea i hear it all the time right it's a terrible idea because it's you know the students are going to trash the house and they're going to party and they're going to drink and they're going to it's just going to be a disaster don't get into student housing i've heard numerous people tell me that over like my life what do you say to that well here's what student housing uh gives you it gives you very high rents no vacancy, and no loss of rents. Okay, I can deal with a little beer pong. Uh, <laughs> you know, no problem. I can deal with some parties. I can deal with a heavy turnover, which that's probably the, one of the downsides of the student rental market is you have so many people relocating year after year. So you have up to 75, maybe 80% turnover. We can talk about that a little bit more about specific orientation of property management towards student rentals. But if you can overcome the obstacles, every business, every niche has an obstacle, of course. And maybe the student obstacle uh, are some that people uh, would shy away from. I would say the kinds of rents and the lack of vacancy issues uh, make student housing very attractive for a real estate investor. Nice. Sounds sounds and, good to me. Yeah. yeah. And, and to yeah. add on, you know, I, I was kind of being, you know, like facetious earlier or whatever you want to call that. Like the idea that people are always going to complain about what people do. Right. When I said I wanted to be a landlord, everyone said I was crazy. When I said I wanted to flip houses, they said I was stupid. You know, sure. like no matter what you get into, like you just said, there are challenges in everything that you do. And, you know, you can yeah. listen to people and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. I'm going to go back to watching my soap operas or I can, you know, overcome those challenges. Well, and I was talking to a guy just not long ago, and he was lamenting about how hard it was to get a profit in a certain area. And I said, you know, business is kind of like going to war. You know, you're not really fighting an enemy, but you're trying to extract profit. You're trying to keep down expenses, and you're in a battle every single day. And you should look at it as, you know, you're putting your your suit and your armor on, and you're going out there, and you're doing what you can to – to conquer the expenses and to increase the income, yeah. you know, kind of thing. You, you got to look at it as a, a contact sport, I would say. Yeah. That's so, cool. So, so we've got low vacancy. We've got high rents. You know, we're probably, you said eight, somewhere around 80%. So every year we're, we're putting in a new, new student or set of students in, into these units. Let's talk about the turnover. Because again, I think that's the one thing that people flip out about. What, well, you know, yeah, you got beer pong, you got kids drinking and partying and not taking care of stuff. I mean, you know, yeah. if you compare the damage that kids are doing to a unit versus, you know, a, a, a rental to to non-students, I mean, yeah. we're, we're probably talking a considerably higher cost, right? Well, let's, yeah, why don't we start with property management? We can jump back into some of the advantages, but maybe property management is a good place to start because that's where sure. you end up. So the first thing 
is turnover. And that is something you just got to gear up. You got to roller coaster your schedule just like a student's schedule. And so there's going to be really high activity when you're leasing up. And there's going to be really a lull during, say, the winter months when things are just moving around, you know, going a normal schedule kind of thing. So you have this roller coaster schedule. And if you have a number of student rentals, you almost wonder what your staff's going to do during the, the lull. And they, they're pulling out their hair during the, uh, during the busy periods. And you just have to deal with that. It's kind of a waning and waxing schedule. The turnover issues, um, you know, I mean, for one thing, you want to get parent co-signers, which is what we get in every one of our student rentals. So this is another great advantage. We don't lose. I, I can't remember when the last time we lost a dollar of rent because you have five students living in a house. You have five co-signers. You have five security deposits. You have five last month's rent. Tell me what's not good about that situation. Yeah. No parent wants their son or daughter to destroy their own credit. So uh, they're, they're going to make good on, on anything that happens. And that's a pretty good hammer to use as a property manager when necessary. And we, you know, uh, some students are great. Some students are a disaster. But, uh, you know, overall, we protect ourselves on the downside by parental cosigner agreements. There's some other issues uh, that probably ought to be addressed. One is group leases. So you're not leasing individual bedrooms in a house. That might be different sometimes in apartments. You're leasing to the whole group. So everybody is jointly and severally responsible for that. And so one, one person gets out of line, the others can pull them in because their dime is on the line yeah. uh, with everybody else's. So that, that's really a good thing to, to remember. You want me to cover a few more things in property management before sure. we move on? Uh, another, another thing is... Uh, websites are incredibly important in the student world because I don't know of a student who's not on the internet, just period. And so their entire life goes through the cloud and goes through the web. You want to be the presence that they, they're looking up. They want to look at the properties. They want to do a virtual tour before they step inside. So pictures are really important. And any website, that's true. I'd say if your pictures aren't at the level of Airbnb, then you ought to redo your pictures. Check out Airbnb.com. Those pictures yep. are attractive, and that's what your property should look like on the web. That's awesome. Yep. That's where students are going to look first is at your photos. And that applies to anybody, by the way. I mean, that's just not just students. Yeah. I mean, you know, it, when you're selling a property, it spend the money to take nice pictures, period. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hired a photographer just to come and take pictures at my apartment complex of one, my best unit, the one with the best tenants, with the best furniture. Great idea. Yeah, yeah. she went through there, took a bunch of pictures, and we've been using them for three years now, the same pictures, and that's what we have on our website. And I, such an easy, I mean, it was like 150 bucks or something like that, and just, mm -hmm. yeah, I'm great tips. I love that, Bill. Yep. Yeah, and marketing is really important, and understanding the student schedule, particularly as you get uh, a few rentals under your belt, because there's there's a lot of co increasing competition out there. A lot of large apartment complexes have been built now next to universities, which has just increased the supply tremendously and sometimes over the demand. So marketing on Craigslist, marketing uh, through for rent signs, uh, we start, this might surprise you, but we start in January for the next September. So our school year starts the end of September, 
in January, a student gets a letter saying, do you want to re-rent this year or not? You need to tell us by February 1st. Mm. It used to be April 1st. Then it was March 1st. Now it's February 1st in Eugene because of the supply of of rentals. So we're knocking on your door real early to say, would you like to release with us? If not, we're going... February 1st to put this on our website and begin to marketing to another group of students who won't move in until the next September. Wow, yeah. Sounds sounds rough. I mean, really, finding tenants has got to be difficult when you've got uh, such an organization. Yeah, I mean... I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's awesome. That's great. You either... The thing about student rentals is you either do or you don't, particularly if a, a property can't really be rented to a family. Now, some can go either way. But some some rentals are really only campus oriented. So you either have a group of students in there, or you have an empty unit yeah. that year. So. Uh, so what about summertime? I mean, do they sign a twelve month lease then, or does it sit vacant all summer? That's that's somewhat a campus to campus issue. So when I started out, I started at the University of Oregon. Go Ducks! By the way, <laughs> and he's I, and uh, he's rocking the duck shirt. I see. Well, not only that, I'm rocking the, the duck. My uh, $200 eBay duck ring. Nice. Now I actually got, check this one out. It's the Rose Bowl ring wow. from our last, uh, well, let's see. It was Florida State. Yes, it even says the score here on the side. How does one get a Rose Bowl ring? Oh, because you're the campus minister? so you have- <laughs> No, 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 no. One goes on Did you steal eBay that? <laughs> and, and looks at one of these Chinese companies and spends $15 <laughs> on Rose Bowl ring. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm going to be rocking. I'm sorry for your people who aren't watching YouTube right now, but I'm really rocking the (laughs) ring here. That is some nice bling. uh, I like that. (laughs) Uh, But anyway, uh, so I started at University of Oregon. I also have a few rentals up in Oregon State. Now, those two campuses are interestingly different because Corvallis, Oregon State, is a very much smaller uh, area or uh, population-wise, about 50,000 were Oregon, uh, University of Oregon has Eugene surrounding it, which is about 250,000. So people in Eugene tend to stay during the summer, much more so than Corvallis. So I was a little reluctant, actually, at first to go to Corvallis because of the very factor you mentioned, Josh. What are you going to do in the summer? You know, you're going to have a lot of vacancies in the summer. And I think you just have to kind of deal with that. As it turns out, Oregon State is booming, and they're growing 6% a year. Oregon's basically flat. And so, actually, there's no issue. People can get your leases, no problem right now. But that, you know, that's kind of a campus-by-campus thing. And somebody who's deciding that they want to, you know, do some campus rental properties, they need to look at their specific campus and think of some criteria about why or why not this might make a good uh, a good fit for starting uh, campus rental. Right. Yeah. Hey, what, what about lawn care? Like, who takes care of that? Do you oh, take care of that, or how does oh, that work? Oh, yeah. So... I, I've seen some landlords thinking, yeah, we'll, uh, we'll figure the students will do that or we'll supply a lawnmower. Well, that just won't cut it. <laughs> Truly won't. <laughs> uh, yeah, thank you very much. Uh, you know, that is one amenity, quote unquote, that you need to give a student if you're going to enjoy what your property looks like. They're just not coming to school to cut grass. They're not going to do it. So have some kind of lawn care service that does that for you. And do they have lawn care services that cut around kegs and, and chairs and beer cans? <laughs> <laughs> You'd be surprised. And while they're there, they're going to pick up uh, plastic cups and they're going to pick up other things for you as well. Yes. Nice. And then they're going to possibly uh, charge back the tenants for their extra time. 
that it took them to Ooh, clean up. Possibly. It sounds mm. like possibly a nice extra bit of money that you can make doing such things. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You're really trying to just make, oh, here's another, just a, a side. Uh, pets. You know, Susie grew up with Barnaby, her wonderful dog, and, uh, you know, Phil grew up with uh, uh, Simon, his cat. What are you going to do about that? For many years, we had a no-pet policy, which we totally switched directions on that. And part of it is is because there's just so much more supply in our area. So we're very pet-friendly. Now, on the other side of that, we're charging a security deposit, pet deposit for that. And also, we're charging pet rent, which is $25 to $45 a month. Nice. And that's going to at least, you know, it's, it's going to even itself out in terms of pet damage, or maybe you'd even make a little money. But what it does do, it increases your potential for your residents, your, your tenant base. That's good. And that's why we're very pet friendly at this point. Right on. Right on. Let, let, let's talk about roommates. I, I'm assuming, you know, you, you've got all the parents co-signing, you got all that, but I'm, I'm guessing that you also end up dealing with some of this student drama where, you know, so-and-so stopped paying and everybody wants to suck you into the whole mess. How do you, how do you typically deal with those situations? Well, again, if you think of it in a mindset of a business, uh, what what are your policies about that? And essentially, your policies is we don't get sucked into the drama. At least we try not to as much as possible. Once in a while, we have to step in because it's to our financial advantage to step in. But generally, it's it's a, you you guys rent it as a group. You guys work it out as a group. We also have a house manager in our in our houses, not not in apartments, but say in a five bedroom house, and that person. Uh, interacts with our office. So when somebody calls about a maintenance thing or goes online and lets us know about a maintenance thing or or some other issue, we want to deal with the house manager so we're not dealing with five different individuals and trying to call somebody back and not sure who we're supposed to deal with. So somebody usually rises to the surface and says, I'll take that responsibility on. I'll be the house manager. Right on. That's right a good on. idea. Cool. Yeah. yeah, I love that. What about, you know, do you have a policy... You know, you've got a house and somebody wants to turn it into a fraternity house or sorority house. I mean, is that is that even feasible? Is that uh, has that happened? You know, talk about well. Uh, people do rent uh, fraternities and sororities uh, out, but here's how I see it: I've actually bought a fraternity house before, and uh, I want to get into this because uh, student rental value is all about the bedroom, and so this fraternity house. Somebody had turned it into 11 apartments, but done a very uh, inefficient job. There was probably 20 bedrooms there. And so what I did, I tore the entire thing apart, and I made 31 bedrooms out of what was 20 before. Now, that took a lot of money, but when you add up the cost of the funds versus the value of the increased rent, it was dramatically different. And that's what I've tried to do time and time again. I've made bedrooms out of in garages, in carports. Uh, we've done it. I took a duplex one time that had one bedroom on both sides. I took the best living room on one side, the best kitchen on the other, and it ended up being a five-bedroom, two-bath campus rental rather than you'd think normally you'd keep a duplex a duplex, but not in this situation. Again, it's a niche market, and the more bedrooms, the better, because yeah. every bedroom is worth four fifty, five fifty, six fifty. You don't really think of campus houses as houses per se, you think of them as small apartment complexes, and each bedroom is an apartment. You rent it as a group, but 
if you can add another apartment unit to your little apartment complex, wouldn't that be a financially uh, advantageous thing to do? Sounds sure good. it would. Sounds yeah. good. So what about permitting? I mean, is is you know, does that create challenges trying to get permits to be able to do that, or or do the uh, you know does the city kind of bend a little bit because they know that this is a student housing type situation? Well, boy, every community is different. Some of them have been kind of, some neighborhoods have been kind of burned because, uh, you know, students have moved into their neighborhood and so they're pretty touchy about it. I think permitting is just like any kind of permitting. Uh, it, you just kind of go through the steps of the city. But I would say there is one thing you should be aware of or a potential uh, real estate student housing investor should be aware of, and that is city ordinances rel- related to unrelated adults living together. So in some communities that are extremely restrictive and say you can't have over three unrelated adults living together, that is a killer for campus properties because you can imagine you're restricting whatever size property you have to three adults living there. That's, I would stay away from that market. That's uh, m- many uh, restricted to five unrelated adults. And so that's kind of your top end. In our city, we even have something that, that is, fortunately, goes beyond that. We have something that allows nine unrelated adults living together. It's called congregate living. Is that per it's, apartment? It's per house. It's, per it's house. in a house. Yeah, in okay. a house. You can have five. We have a number of nine-bedroom houses. Wow. And again, they're like many apartment buildings. And they have, uh, well, let me give you an example. I uh, had a um, property that was built in 1884. It's the oldest building of its kind that still exists in Eugene. It was a uh, Abram cider and fruit dryer. Folks went there and they pressed apples and made cider in 1884. Wow. As a matter of fact, the name is still on the side of the building that says Abram cider and fruit dryer factory. That's cool. The building has only been painted one time in its entire 131 year life. Wow. That's a testimony to lead-based paint, by the way. (laughs) Anyway, I had uh, made the bottom part of that in a basically Class A office space at one point, and three different uh, software companies had uh, rented it. In the downturn of the market in the late 2000s, there was a lot of unrented office space in Eugene. So I decided to turn it into campus rentals since it was near the campus. And uh, I was able to put a bunch of money into it, but ended up with nine bedrooms and three baths, which generates a tremendous amount. I think they're probably rented for about four fifty a bedroom, something like that. You can just add it together. That's a tremendous amount of rental income. Wow. Wow. And that the 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 fraternity house, I'm I'm just curious. I, and I don't know if you're willing to share or, or you know if you even recall, but you know, would you mind sharing how much you paid for it, what you spent on renovation and and uh, yeah, well, that, gosh, those were the good old days. Yeah. We're talking uh, mid '90s there, and I it was it was a disaster. It was not just a fraternity house; it had a 48 unit um, quad complex behind it, and I paid oh about nine hundred thousand. I think wow. I wow. put over time. I probably put at least that much money into it, at least okay. that much, maybe more, and I I was able to get actually a. Uh, uh, a city loan initially for it that held me. As a matter of fact, I bought the property, and this is this is kind of my nature. But I bought the property, and I said, "Wow, that was a good purchase, I think." But what am I going to do because this place is a disaster? And uh, I, I was fortunate to, you know, just kind of move one step at a time, find uh, the money to fix it up, and go from there. So, so you rent? I mean, those are the. 
you're running to the kids in the frat house at at somewhere in that four fifty to seven fifty per per month. Yeah, it's per an apartment. It's an apartment building now. It's not really a frat house, okay. but it was originally a frat house. Yes. Okay. All right. Cool. Yeah. Now here's a, here's another uh, situation. Um, sometimes you could take a commercial building. I took a dental office and created four units out of that. Uh, two four bedrooms, one two bedroom, and one one bedroom. And you think of a dental office as being having very small rooms, which it does. So that was the downside, these teeny bedrooms with no closets. But what you can do in a situation like that is buy a bunk bed apparatus that has a bunk on the top and a desk on the bottom. And all of a sudden, you get a lot more floor space and a kind of a normal-sized bedroom, even though you started out with these teeny rooms. Yeah. That's another. That's a cool uh, idea. Yeah. That was a great tip. Yeah. Yeah. That's very neat. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Listeners, I'm telling you right now, it's not every day you find a game changer like Rent Ready. They're not stopping with just tenant screening. They've rolled out proof of income verification. Let Rent Ready handle the heavy lifting with automatic checks on financial stability and earnings. Plus, with Plaid certified reports, you'll have all the info you need right at your fingertips. Rent Ready is included in your pro membership at Bigger Pockets. And if you're not a pro, they're offering the six month plan for just $1. How great of a deal is that? That's one eighth of a Chipotle. That's pretty good. Visit rentready.com. That's R E N T R E D I.com and use the code BP Investor. That's BP, like Bigger Pockets, Investor, to get six months of rent ready for $1. You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. You're trying to close on your next rental, so why is your insurance company dragging its feet? 
With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single-family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Well, cool. Um, well, before we, I mean, obviously we'll, we'll still talk a little about student rentals, but I want to know a little bit about your business as well and how you actually run the business now. So first of all, how big is your operation? How many units do you have and uh, kind of what are you doing overall? Well, we've, you know, going back to the niche concept, you know, I, really the financial underpinnings of our company started with student rental properties. And that allowed us to expand into another niche. And interestingly enough, in 205 and 206, I ran an internship for 16 college students over two summers. And these college students were business majors from University of Oregon and Oregon State. My son, Andrew, was going to Oregon at the time and helped me pull that whole thing together. So for three months over two different summer, these students learned everything about our company, property management. They negotiated with sellers. We bought properties together. We fixed properties up. They just learned a ton because they wanted to learn how to become real estate investors. And so of those 16, five of those became partners of mine in 207. If you remember 207, kind of the height of the market. (laughs) Yeah. So it was just starting to tip over and go down. And what we ended up doing is, and I think you've talked to Andrew and Philip about this, we flipped nearly 200 houses in Portland, Salem, and Eugene with all these partners. And uh, we were doing short sales and foreclosures, one after another after another. So that was the, the next niche we got into. We became experts at short sales and foreclosures. We became really, really good at it. And uh, But it got very tiresome. As a matter of fact, I just got tired of the whole thing that the flipping operation is, is very complex because you not only have to be good at buying, you have to be good at selling. Yeah. And I, I wanted to go back to the buy and hold model, which the company originated with. And so that's when we began to look around for someplace else. And we kind of fell into the Kansas City market. A friend of mine had wanted to, me to go out and buy an apartment complex there together. I went out, looked at it, and I said, yeah, I'd like to do that. And that ended up, I invited all my uh, young partners to consider going to the Midwest with me. We looked at a number of different markets, and all of them said, no, we like the Northwest better. We think we'll stay here. (laughs) (laughs) The only one who relocated was my son, Andrew. And so in January of 2011, he went to Kansas City, and that's kind of the it was like Normandy Beach, you know, just starting from scratch and uh, take, you know, moving ahead. So uh, now we've have basically as many properties in Kansas City as we have in in Eugene, which is uh, quite a number. Uh, another niche market that we got into was I had a partner who came back from Ecuador, who he lived there for three years, and married an Ecuadorian woman. And he said, Bill, I'd like to get back into real estate. And we had had one project in Eugene we'd done way back in the early 90s. And so we decided to focus on the Dallas market. We bought multifamily properties down there. And he's become an expert. I don't know if I'm an expert in this niche market, but he's become quite the expert in multifamily 
in Dallas. So I've started at my age, somewhat my my experience, I've started riding the wave of younger investors. As a matter of fact, I was just counting up the other day. I have one sole proprietorship. That's the Eugene Rentals I own. But I have seven active real estate partnerships with other people who are involved in distinct niches around the country. That, that's really a lot of fun. I'm kind of yeah. an opportunity junkie, really, is what it boils down to. That's outstanding. That's so yeah. cool. Yeah. And, and, you know, we chat about this a lot. Had you not partnered with those folks, you know, you, you miss out on the opportunity. And so a piece, uh, you know, however small it is, of a bigger opportunity that somebody else is doing is better than no piece of anything. And, and yeah. I know Brandon loves, loves, loves talking about partnerships and using those to build your business. And I love to see that that's what you're doing as well. It's, uh, it's outstanding. You know, that was that was the insight I came. I was uh, back in 2004, and this was, I'd been in the business about 15 years at this point. I went on vacation, and I was uh, leading a class. I was teaching a class on Good to Great by Jim Collins. And to prep for it, I, I read Built to Last. And in Built to Last, he evaluates companies that are 50 years or older and just uh, companies that have stood the test of time. And he says, to me, what he said was, you got to think about moving out of the mindset of this little business you got. I got campus rentals. I'm doing all right into a different mindset. And this is the mindset. What does it take to build an enduringly great company? What a great phrase. And that turned my business mindset around because I didn't have an enduringly great company at that point. But what would it take to move where I was at that point? To moving in that direction. And you're exactly right, Josh. It would take partners who had a lot other gifts and energy and perspective and background than I had to make that kind of thing happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, so how big is your operation today? I mean, uh, how many people work for you? And and I don't know again if you're willing to share, but how many properties do you? Well, have? we've got about oh, I think about 250 houses and apartment units in Eugene. We have. Uh, going on 230 houses in Kansas City and about wow. 130 apartment units. By the way, we're just on the precipice of buying 97. That's why I can add nearly 100 more to what we have today. 97 units or houses? 97 houses in my purchase. Are you, are you is serious? A, wow. It's crazy. It's crazy. We'll have to come on one time at sometime <laughs> and maybe talk about that. Or maybe Andrew, yeah. who, is, who is your blogger, uh, contributive blogger. Yeah could uh, describe that. That would be outstanding. There's a lot of lessons and we've learned a lot of lessons just in that purchase. When do you close on Uh, that? uh, Within the month. Wow. Yeah. By the end of the month. As a matter of fact, I hope in the middle of the month, September. So very cool. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, And then in Kansas uh, and Dallas, we own, uh, I think 77 units in two different apartment complexes. Wow. So So little, little operation. you got. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's pretty diverse. We probably have, Oh, let's see. We have about 15, we probably have thirty uh, folks who work for us, something like that, in the whole wow. thing. No and and I'll tell you, building building a if you want to build an enduringly great company, you've got to build a great team. And I feel like that through fits and starts, and truly, that's what it is, because nobody is an expert at building a team. Uh, but I feel like we've come to that point where we have got a great team in Eugene. I mean, we've got people who do so well at property management. And uh, they they know the market. I'm not giving any direction. They kind of tell me what what they're doing at this point, and it's just great. 
Kansas City, they're a little younger at building their team. They have about the same number as we do, but and through fits and starts, they've they've put together what I think is really a quality team as well. My partner in Dallas has got a good team too. So it's, you know, becoming a team leader is kind of something new for people as they begin to become, you know, as they as they pull on employees and contractors and others. But essentially you need to become a good manager and yeah. figure out what that's about. Is that I mean we're, we're, we've been going through the same thing, you know. Today, our team at Bigger Pockets is considerably bigger than it was uh, two years ago, one year ago, and I'm experiencing the same thing. That's my, my job is to learn how to be a good team leader and and guide uh, these amazing people who work for me and and are passionate, um, and you know, make sure they maintain that passion and and keep them excited. And yeah, um, you know, is that pretty much what you do today? Your job, your role in the company is just kind of that team leader and. Um, Visionary, yeah. I mean, um, you know, I think of one of, one of the big changes for me has gone from kind of a sole proprietor mindset to this partnership team mindset, and that was a big transition fairly recently. And we're talking three years ago. I went from making pretty much the decisions of the company into having an executive team that includes Andrew, my son, Philip, my son, and then our operations manager out of Eugene is Amanda. And so I can't make decisions anymore just on my own, which is freeing and frustrating at the same time. But I, they truly are partners. They have a say. And uh, the folks who work with them have a say in their areas of responsibility as well. They truly have a say. And giving over ownership, so to speak, of whatever it is that you own is, is, is a privilege and a responsibility to somebody. And uh, you're thankful to see that they ri- often rise to the occasion. That yeah, yeah. So very, very cool, yeah. very cool. Well, before we get out of here, we want to go over to the fire round section of the show, which are, we have a lot more kind of student rental questions in there as well. So, or at least investing that'll involve that. So, uh, mm-hmm. let's do that now. Here's the fire round. It's time for the fire round. All right, the fire round. These questions come direct out of the Bigger Pockets forum. So these are real questions that people are asking on Bigger Pockets. Number one, are there any special financing rules for student housing? You know, any kind of real estate investment in my mind that's buy and hold really inclu- includes short term financing and long term financing. When I think of short term, you got options here. Fortunately for me, the way I started was mom and dad financing, and that's between zero and six percent interest. Okay. For me, oftentimes it was 0%. And that's the only way a poor campus pastor who had no credit uh, to speak of, no real income could get started was my dad and mom. Uh, they loaned me money and they kind of believed in me. And at mom and dad prices, which was awesome. Not only that, my dad, my dad signed mortgages for me because nobody would loan me any money. And it wasn't until a few years ago that he actually got off of all the mortgages he had signed for me. So if you have a mom and dad or uncle or whatever that could do that for you, is open to that because they trust you and you're making good decisions, then that's a good place to start. Then there's ma and pa money. These are people, associates, people that you meet, people that you network, that you can show, hey, I've got something here that makes sense financially. The numbers add up and you show them the photos, you show them the numbers. Maybe you have a brag book by this time. We have a website uh, that's kind of a brag book for us. People can go and, and get information about us. 
And I, I peg that at 9%. That's most of the money we borrow is at 9%. We're no points. We're not paying points on it. But that's not hard money. When you get to hard money, you're talking more like 11 plus percent and points. So if, if you have to go there and the numbers allow you to go there, then hard money is going to work for you. Finally, another short-term way to approach it is to get an equity partner. So you're splitting ownership, but they're bringing the money into it if you don't. You have to transition to that, though, to long-term financing if you're being buy and hold. And that's the challenge of buy and hold. How do you transition to long-term financing? You've done some kind of value add. And value add is critical when you're looking at a piece of property. How am I going to add value to this? Oftentimes, rehab is how people add value. But in the campus rental market, adding bedrooms is a value add. Changing the nature of a building can be a value add. So uh, how do you do that? Well, how do you kick into long-term financing? And again, I think that I could go through a number of different um, strategies if you want me to, but uh, you've you've had a lot of that on bigger pockets. But you want to eventually lower your cost of funds, even from ma and pa 9% money to lower interest money, like in the 5% range. So so would I be correct in saying that kind of your strategy has largely been buy the properties with short-term money and then refinance it into longer-term money after a value-add? Absolutely. And our, our goal is to, is to refinance all the money. This is not always achievable. But in Kansas City, we're, we're really buying quite a lot right now. You know, we want to buy something that when we're all said and done with it and the property season, which local banks it usually takes a year to season the property, you've rehabbed, rented, and seasoned the property. Then we bundle them together. So we're usually refinancing like 10 properties at a time. And we're trying to get all our money out, all our private lender money out, because we're usually buying 100% uh, of the value of the property, not the value of the property, 100% of what it's costing us. The value of the property, hopefully, is at least 25% more of that, because we're buying really good deals. You know, a lot of foreclosure properties and uh, properties that uh, are bank-owned properties, REO properties, et cetera. So we're trying to get a really good deal. And really, that's where real estate starts. It starts with a great deal. If you have a great deal, you can find the money. You yeah. can find the means. Find the great deal, and the money will follow. Yeah, that, I love that. That is our new quote card for this uh, podcast. Yeah. yeah, that's that's awesome. And that's, that's awesome. I, I use a phrase a lot around here around BP called Burr, which is like you know B R R R R. I'm cold. Like Burr is this idea of you buy it, you rehab it, you rent it out, and then you refinance it and you repeat. So it's the buy, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat. And uh, I went to a Bigger Pockets meetup up in. Uh, like just a, a group of bigger pockets members got together at the Ram Brewery up in uh, Lakewood, Washington. Anyway, and there at the thing, I like five different people there all said, "Yeah, I'm I'm working on the Burr strategy right now. I'm working on this thing because it just it, if you do it right, it can be an awesome way to get a lot of properties without putting a lot of money into it." Yeah, yeah, and I mean that's the L of ideal, right? I D E A L leverage. You yeah. got to be careful with leverage because it can cut against you just like it can cut for you, but. But if you can, uh, that, that's why an ordinary person become, can become very well off in real estate because they're leveraging other people's money and they're using a very little of their own money. And hopefully if they value add right, they rehab right, they actually pull out all of their funds. Yeah, so very that's cool. That's the goal. That's the goal. Right that actually kind of answers the, one of the other questions in the fire round was just, is no money down real estate actually a thing? Like, is that a possibility or is it just a scam? And you kind of answered that, right? You can yeah. technically do it. Starts with a good deal. Starts with go. a great deal. Yeah. Yeah. All right. 
well, I, I've got my my fire round question since our fire round is running a little bit less fiery. Usually, it's <laughs> quick question, quick answer. Oh, answers. okay. No, right. Sorry about that. I, no, I, I like. I, I love. I, love <laughs> I would it. rather have the in depth. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so our our last question for the fire round is: Do you have any unique ways to find properties? You know, the the very best, and this goes back in history, the very best marketing thing I ever did was a three-line ad. And it, again, it was targeted to a niche geographical area. I put it in the classifieds, which I don't even know if they exist anymore, but in, in the campus area of town. And the ad said, save the commission in bold at the top. Uh, I'm looking, let's see, it said, wanted a home or investment property in the campus area. Bill, and then my phone number. Three-line ad. The first property I bought from that could help me afford to do that ad for the end of time kind of thing. <laughs> nice. So, I mean, it, it, it's simple. It's uh, maybe overlooked, you know, but it's, it's a niche thought. Just target this. I mean, I've had high school students go into areas of town that were circled the campus that were not right against the campus. And by the way, this is a strategy that I use quite a bit with campus rentals that I didn't talk about was not buying, so you've got A, B, C, D, E, F. A is like, you know, in walking distance of campus. B is like a half a mile walking, biking distance. C is maybe a mile to two miles, say biking, driving distance. D is driving distance, and and F would be in another area of town, which I've even tried and once in a while gotten away with renting to students in a whole different area of town. But those those make a difference in terms of how much you can charge for rent, obviously, and how good your occupancy is going to be. But what I've tended to do is, is, is not buy in the A areas because they're so expensive, but look for the C and B areas that are a little farther away from campus and to focus on those where you have homeowners who aren't thinking about campus rentals, but their house would make a perfect campus rental. It's a little farther away, but... Uh, if you made it attractive to students by thinking with them in mind as you rehabbed it or, or whatever, that that would make a great student rental. And so you've saved by not spending so much in the purchase price, but you still get the advantage of having higher rents than you would normally get. Awesome. Nice. That's great. I do, yeah. have, I do have one more question I'm going to throw into the fire around here because it's my question. How are you attracting tenants then to those properties and not just normal people? I mean, do, like, do you write, this is student housing or? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, you can't write family friendly. You yep. can't do anything like that. Those are all big no-nos. So uh, when people see... The, hey, Bill, the, Bill, really quickly, can you explain yeah. that for those people who are listening who don't understand? Why not? Just uh, So, uh, I mean, the, the discriminatory uh, potential of, of putting any words like this, adult-friendly or family-friendly or student-only, or I mean, that that is just uh, not going to fly. And um, Fair housing laws. Fair housing laws is going to have somebody uh, knocking on your door about you need, you need to hear, apply to this. And it might not be a pleasant experience, as a matter of fact. So you need to be careful about that. And how we discriminate is the price of the rent. We'll rent to anybody who will pay this price, but only students are likely going to pay that kind of price for that single family residence. You're not going to get a family to do it. So it's self-selective. Okay. You know, it's relatively close to campus. It's got more bedrooms than most houses would have. It's got small living areas because what you've done, you've taken the dining room and made a bedroom out of it, right? You've taken the family room and split it into half and made a bedroom and a bathroom, two bedrooms and a bathroom out of it. So you've done everything you can to maximize the bedrooms and maybe added a bathroom while you're at it. 
And that's, that's your thing. It's all about the bedroom. Well, most regular families, it's all about the bathroom, the living room, and the kitchen. For you, yep. those are secondary issues. When yeah. a student looks at a house, they're not looking at the manicured lawn. They're not looking yep. at the two-car garage. They're not looking at the, the great school down the block. They're looking at, where am I going to live? What's the home within the home for me? And that's my bedroom and maybe secondarily my bathroom. You know, where, where is that going to be for my house? That's what they're thinking. And that's, as a student rental investor, that's how you got to think too. Yeah. Right on, right on. Yeah. All right. Very, very cool. This is like, I mean, this whole episode has been, uh, that was a great uh, yeah, I've learned a ton of stuff. So this is great. Um, I really want to know, uh, obviously I say this every time, but I really want to like look more into, cause I, I'm like a mile away from my uh, college, like our college here, I'm like about a mile and we have a fair amount of students, probably 10% or 20% of our people are students and they're always our best tenants. Like I love renting to students. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to make more of an emphasis on that now and try to, especially I'm kind of thinking these are two better apartments. Focus, man. Every I know, episode, I know. You, we learn well, something new. We what talk I do is to I, somebody new and, oh my God, I want to do this. Oh my God, I'm doing rental homes. Oh my God, well, I'm this doing is storage. Dude, I just got to do riches. Brandon, the riches. In the niches. niches. I know. Find the niche. All I got to do is tell my wife, though, hey, hey, you should, you know, let's, let's, let's emphasize the student rental part and then I don't have to do anything more. That's, that's uh, her business. Along with the eight. Well, let me tell you about a couple of friends of mine. I'll take the other ones. A couple of friends of mine have done the same thing. A guy named Mark, we bought a couple of houses together and then we split off, but he is a contractor, a total craftsman, incredible Finnish carpenter. And what he did is he bought in the C minus areas around in terms of proximity to campus, kind of outside. But he cherried out his houses. When he markets, he doesn't put the address in. He just puts the pictures in. Then they call and he says, oh, meet me at such and such. They drive a little farther than they're used to. But when they get there and open the front door, they say, oh, my gosh, I have got to live here. I don't care how far it is from campus. And so he's he's built up, I think he's got seven houses right now that he's uh, done that. Another friend of mine, uh, Chris, who went to, he was an intern with us back in 205. He uh, saw what we were doing. He uh, relocated back to his hometown in Poughkeepsie, New York, where Marist College is. Yep. And he said, I'm going to do the same thing. He's now got uh, seven or eight campus houses. That's all he does in life is he just attends to his houses and he uh, he travels the world. So it's pretty cool what Chris has done. And, and yeah. you know, every Every situation is different, but again, you've got to, you kind of got to get good at it. You got to have your niche, maybe even within the niche. So, yeah, right on. I love it. Right on. Yeah, I love it. All right, cool. Well, let's move over to the world famous. Famous for. All right. These are the questions we ask every guest, and I know we asked your kids it, and so we're going to ask you it now. Uh, what is your favorite real estate book? Well, I was thinking about this, guys, and, and if you give me a little uh, room here for a departure, because I'm going to say <laughs> something that probably everybody else has said on Bigger Pockets at one time or another. Let me, let me talk just a little bit about how I think about reading. Okay? Sure. And I'll mention some books if you're okay with this. I think about what's classic, what stands the test of time, what's an awesome book that I want to reread, maybe on a yearly basis. So I think of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. I think I'm going to read a book by Stephen Covey every year. The Eighth Habit's a great book. Uh, First Things First is a great book. So every year I'm going to read a book by Stephen Covey. I don't care uh, what it is. Um, Then I think of, well, what are the classics in real estate? Uh, Every year I'm going to read The Millionaire Real Estate Investor by Gary uh, Keller. And you had on Jay. Yeah, Jay Papasan. Yeah, Papasan. 
I think that's a modern classic as a real estate book. Every year I'm going to read it. So, you know, what Francis Bacon said was that some books should be tasted, some devoured, and some, well, only a few, he said, should be chewed and digested thoroughly. And I'm taking his advice that I can read, uh, like, like I love, uh, who is it, Nisam's Talib? Yeah, Talib's books like um, The Black Swan, Tipping Point, uh, what else has he written? Um, Outliers. I love those books, but those books, you get the idea once and you kind of got it. It's probably not a book I would come back to every year. Great book, but not not the classic kind of book I want to read year in and year out. A second criteria I often that orients me towards books is are they researched or are they anecdotal? There's a lot of anecdotal uh, real, you know, this is what I did. It turned out great. You know, you should do it too. And even now you've heard some of my own experiences, which is somewhat hard to translate. But what are the books that are genuinely researched? Jim Collins puts 20,000 hours into Built to Last, Good to Great, Great by Choice. Each book has had a graduate team of people behind that book researching that. So when he says, this is how it works, like he talks about, Oh, gosh, there's so, so many. I won't go through the principles. You know, this is fact. This is anecdotal. This isn't, yeah. this isn't my experience. This is fact. So I look for, for books that are, are research books. And I would put Gary Keller's book in that, that category, too, because it's really a research book is what it is. And finally, um, what I would say is read books, the great books you want to read in, in a group setting to get feedback on. Our executive team that I mentioned, Amanda, Andrew, and Philip, and I, we read books together. One we read relatively recently is probably the greatest title of any book ever written, What Got You Here Won't Get You There by Marshall Goldsmith. What a great book if you want to be hit in the face by the business version of the Sermon on the Mount. He goes to <laughs> 20 personal character qualities that you're not doing very good. Andrew calls it uh, Why You Screw Up So Badly, I think something like that, or Why You're Screwing Up So Badly. But it, it's a very uh, it's a very challenging book to talk about in a group context because you know me, I know you, and here's here's some of the things I really want to work on. He's written a, a recent book, called, and I haven't read this yet, called Triggers, uh, Creating Behavior That Lasts, Becoming the Person That You Want to Be. And that that I, I can't read, can't wait to read that book and read it in a group context to get some feedback. Right on. Yeah, right that's on. awesome. Well, well, you answered my next question, <laughs> which, which is favorite business book. Why don't we jump to hobbies? What do, what do you do for fun? Well, being in Oregon, it's hard not to be outdoors. Hiking is uh, something my wife and I like to do. Any kind of outdoor activity is fun to do. I'd say, and maybe to my downfall, I'm a little bit of an opportunity junkie, as I mentioned before. So I love business. And to me, business is kind of a hobby now. Where once it it was a hobby, and I was making a mess of it. Now it's become a hobby in a different sort of way that I just enjoy it so much. I want to I want to be around these uh, folks that are partners of mine now and younger. Visit with them, hang out with them, you know, learn together, grow together, and that's that's kind of one of my hobbies as well. Is just the opportunities that present themselves. Right. On. Just to, just to give one, I can't can't stand this is such a great example in Jim Collins uh, built to last I think it's built to last he gives the example of uh, how uh, Marriott Hotel started so Marriott in the 20s it was John Willard Marriott started he had the first A&W franchise 
And instead of having this gigantic uh, strategy about how he was going to build the Marriott hotel chain, he had A&W root beer stands. Interesting. And as it turned out, the one next to the airport was doing better than all the rest of them. The reason he found out from the manager was because he was bringing in food to give to airline passengers because there was no catering at that time on airlines flying uh, you know, across the country or uh, across the Europe or whatever. And so that's where Marriott started was providing catering on airlines. And then he realized that when the uh, when the travelers got to their destination, there was no good hotels. So he said, well, why don't we start building hotels? Here was a guy who who went where the opportunities afforded themselves. He just followed the opportunity. And I really feel like that's that's a great model. Follow the opportunity and then get really, really good at that niche. Yeah. That's awesome. Love it. Cool. All right. My final question of the day, Bill, what do you believe sets apart successful real estate investors from those who give up, they fail, or they never get started? Well, I think, you know, if anything, you have to have a mindset. And the mindset is uh, somewhat that I I am, and this may be a little little strong, but I am kind of going to war. This, This is not, this is really a challenging thing that is to extract value to gain profit, to lower expenses. This is, this is not something that there's a book that can just tell you how to do this. This is something that takes education, training, and then it takes action. And certainly it's action that separates people from wannabes to really doing it. It's taking action. And sometimes you're stepping into the unknown. As a matter of fact, a lot of times you're stepping into the unknown. You want to do it carefully. You want to do it with, you know, some some uh, people, you know, in a network helping you along, you want to have a backup and et cetera, but you want to take action. If you don't just say, I'm going to make an offer on this. As a matter of fact, I'm going to make a lot of offers out here. If you don't start doing that, you're just not going to buy a property. And then, so what's the action I'm going to take? Execution. Where am I going to go today? What, what am I going to do to take the next step? Right on. I love it. Very cool. That's great. All right, Bill, where can people find out more about you? Well, uh, you can go to our website, stewardshipproperties.com. Uh, we also have a, a, a partner and I have a website called Stewardship Capital. Uh, we buy, buy notes, and that describes that business a little bit. Our company is called Stewardship Properties because uh, it kind of reminds me that uh, we're all just passing through this life, right? And uh, while we're here, how do we think of ourselves not so much as owners but as managers? of what we've been entrusted. So it's a reminder for me every time I look at that name, but that's that's who we are, stewardshipproperties.com. Fantastic. Fantastic. Cool. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's uh, it's odd for me to be, uh, you know, on on a podcast. I've got, I've got the college pastor. I've got the student, <laughs> pa- the, you know, the kid pastor, junior pastor, uh, my co-host <laughs> over here. You are surrounded, Josh. So I got to watch my mouth. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Oh hey, listen, it was a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks, Bill. Yeah, thank you. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. All right, guys, that was Bill Sirius here on the Bigger Pockets podcast, show 140. That's biggerpockets.com slash show 140. And you can actually check out the show notes at biggerpockets.com slash show 140. You know, we didn't do this at the front of the show. So uh, I wanted to just take a time, uh, take an opportunity to remind you guys, please, please leave us ratings and reviews on SoundCloud and Stitcher and um, iTunes. 
iTunes, YouTube, even <laughs> if you're listening sure. or checking this out on YouTube, but iTunes is exceptionally helpful. Um, and uh, today we've got a really cool review uh, from I less than three, this podcast. I love, <laughs> oh, I heart this podcast. I get it. Um, and uh, oh, you know what? It was, I went to a guru seven seminar, didn't want to pay 30,000 bucks, found BP. I never looked back from my real estate investing education. Listen to this show if you're serious about your REI. Love it. Cool. Love it, love it, love it. Yeah, I'm so, going to make fun of you for a second. I, yeah, less don't, than don't. three. You know what? You're um, not um, hip on the, on the teen language of the I, less than three that's heart. That's probably a good thing, Brandon. <laughs> well, you don't, got, you don't talk like an 18-year-old girl or 16-year-old girl? Come on. That's, I'm, I'm sorry. Okay, I'm sorry. Well, that's your job. That's why I pay you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second. <laughs> All right. All right. Anyway, so uh, yeah, obviously, you know, go leave us a rating review and make sure you use the lesson and the number three so Josh gets confused. <laughs> uh, with that, Josh, take us out. Take us out. All right, guys. Well, thanks for listening. We really appreciate it. Please be sure to check us out at biggerpockets.com. If you don't have an account, get on there, make one today. It's free, and there's a whole lot of people on there. We're almost at 350,000. We are at, we crossed 350,000. What we am did. I thinking? Are you drunk? 350,000. <laughs> I could be. Uh, 300, drunk on life. 350,000 wow. members on Bigger Pockets. Jump in, join today, get to know some of those folks, and uh, uh, create your account. But with that, we'll see you next week on show 141 of the Bigger Pockets podcast. I'm Josh Dorkin, signing off. You're listening to Bigger Pockets Radio, simplifying real estate for investors large and small. If you're here looking to learn about real estate investing without all the hype, you're in the right place. Be sure to join the millions of others who have benefited from BiggerPockets.com, your home for real estate investing online. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming small multifamily bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the small multifamily bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.